and welcome to all of you on this Resurrection Sunday. The reality is we are all here for one reason, because he is risen. So thank you for coming this morning. And turning your Bibles, if you would please, we'll open with scripture reading. Turning your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke. This morning we'll read chapter 24, and we will read verses 1 through 12 of Luke 24. Luke 24, 1 through 12, there's an old saying that goes something like this. If it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. Fortunately for us, God always makes good on his promises, and what may seem to be too good to be true from his word always is true, because God is truth, and there is no deceit to be found in him. Each gospel has an account of the resurrection. In the gospel of Luke, we read not only the resurrection account, but we find an account of the actions of what might be best described as flailing followers and doubting disciples. Sometimes our own problem is much like the problem the women had who followed Jesus. To put it plain and simple, during a time of crisis, they had failed to remember what Jesus had told them, just like we often fail to remember what God has told us in his word. Luke uses the word perplexed to describe the women, and clearly they were confused. In spite of what Jesus had said before, apparently it never sank in, at least not deep enough for them to embrace the resurrection Christ spoke of. So we find the women who followed him most closely possessing such little faith that when they did go to visit the tomb, they brought with them a mix of spices prepared the night before to mask the stench of death, they were certain awaited them. Maybe you never experienced this in your own life, but in mine, during a time in my life when I lacked confidence in what God was doing, it led to overwhelming confusion and unrelenting fear. And here we see both. Because these women were not only confused, they were terrified. The problem was not that Christ's promise was empty, but the tomb clearly was, and they had forgotten his promise. Recharged through that reminder, they told the apostles not only what they saw, but what they heard, and at least initially, What the apostles heard was a message viewed by them as not only one that made no sense, but one that could not be believed, except Peter. Peter, who was most famous for standing at the wrong time for the wrong purpose, the one who ended up cutting and running from those who would persecute him, wasted no time 
in running toward what seemed to be too good to be true. Because of what Christ did for us, we should be characterized as those who love and serve our Savior, wasting no time in running to do whatever it is he calls us to do. And on this Easter morning, as we meet together, we are called to not only love and serve, but to worship a risen Savior, always remembering what still seems too good to be true. Luke 24, 1 through 12, and now if you would please stand with me for the reading of God's word. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they came to the tomb bringing the spices which they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing. And as the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living one among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified. And the third day rise again. And they remembered his words and returned from the tomb and reported all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now they were Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James. Also the other women with them were telling these things to the apostles. But these words appeared to them as nonsense, and they would not believe them. But Peter got up and ran to the tomb, stopping, stooping, and looking in. He saw the linen wrappings only, and he went away to his home, marveling at what had happened. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Today and every day we are reminded of your magnificent grace extended toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. How thankful we are that you are a compassionate God. We have all experienced times of fear, times of indifference, and times of outright disobedience, and yet you were still willing to forgive us. Today we thank you for Christ and what he accomplished and that because of that we are restored to a right relationship with you forever. In light of eternity, we know that our time here is short and yet while you have us here, we want to be used by you. Please equip us in all you call on us to do knowing that as your children we are serving and representing you. Give us a deeper understanding and a greater appreciation for the event we celebrate this Resurrection Sunday.
and let that deeper understanding result in a greater commitment to everything that brings honor to your name. Please continue to teach us during our time of worship as you fill and use our pastor called by you and accountable to you for all that he preaches. Give us ears that hear, hearts that are always responsive to what we hear. As we remember the resurrection of our Savior on this greatest day in history. May we think, say, and do all that is according to your own will. We pray it be so in Jesus' name. Amen. You can remain standing. Good morning. Jesus' words to the women on their way to tell the disciples was rejoice. Rejoice. The first words of a resurrected Savior. Rejoice. Rejoice this morning. For he is here in our midst. Same yesterday, today, and forever. is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock, on Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Darkness seems to hide his face. I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. Oh, Christ the solid rock. Stand all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. His oath is covenant, his blood support me in the whelming flood. And all around my soul. and say on Christ the solid rock I stand all other ground is sinking sand all other ground is sinking sand and he shall come with trumpets down oh may I then in him be found dressed in his righteousness alone fall us to stand before the throne on Christ a solid rock I stand all other ground is sinking sand all other ground is sinking sand 
in all I do to honor you. Jesus, you are my King. You
Sometimes it causes us to tremble, Lord. When they pierced you in the side, it was because you truly were dead. You had died. The Spirit had left your body. Lord, in our place, God, for us, And then when the stone was rolled away, you claimed the victory once and for all, God. The sin indeed was put away. The Lamb of God had taken away the sin of the world. And now you are alive forevermore. The power of an endless life that you share with every single one of us who put our faith in you, Lord. And that same spirit that rose, raised Jesus from the dead lives in us. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. He is risen. He is risen indeed. In Christ alone. My hope is found, He is my light, my strength, my song, this cornerstone, 
this solid ground Run through the fiercest drought and storm What heights of love, what depths of peace When fears are stilled, when striving cease My comforter, my all and all Here in the love of Christ I stand Christ alone, who took on flesh, fullness of God in helpless faith, this gift of love and righteousness, scorned by the ones he came to save, till on the cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. On him was laid Here in the death of Christ I live There in the ground His body lay Light of the world by darkness slain Then burst him forth In glorious day up from the grave he rose again And in victory Since curse has lost its grip on me For I am his and he is mine Bought with the precious blood of Christ Guilt in life, no fear in death this is the power of Christ in me From life's first cry to final breath Jesus commands my victory No power of hell, no sin of man Can ever pluck me from his hand Till he returns or calls me home the power of Christ I stand. Let's sing that verse again. Let's all stand and sing that verse again. No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. Till he returns or calls me home Here in the power of Christ I stand I'll stand Yes, Lord Amen and The church said Amen can be seated.
Well, good morning, everyone. It's a blessed day in our lives today to remember our Lord Jesus Christ. And as you come to church this morning, I noticed, and you would notice, and you couldn't miss, if you look to your right, there's a graveyard full of people who have passed before us. And each one of us sitting here until Christ comes will eventually end up over there or somewhere like it. Or something will happen to you where you no longer exist in regards to your physical body. You're going to die. You're going to die. And the religious people of Jesus' day thought they had him. We got him now. But today, hallelujah, he's risen again. Praise the Lord. We're saved indeed. Thank you, Lord Jesus Christ. What a blessing it is. Now, as far as our uh, announcements this morning, there's really not much to say other than you can look at your bulletin and see him in there. And uh, the only one that we want to make note of is tonight will be no evening service. So you spend the time with your family and loved ones and uh, be thinking about our Lord Jesus Christ this evening, if you would. At this time, I'd like to welcome any guests that are here. If you're here for the first time and you're not too timid, you'd like to stand and give us your name and where you're from. Or you could just fill out the guest card in the pew in front of you and uh, leave your name with us that you were here and visiting and uh, we'd love to have that. So anybody want to stand and give us your name? I know that we've got a few people that are visiting today. Everybody's a little... T- Carol? I'm not, I'm not new, but my granddaughter's here with me today. Amen. That's fine. We know you're not timid, Carol. All right. God bless you. Yes. Yeah, anybody else? God bless you. Okay, well, we're going to pray for each one of you now and for our guest. Father, thank you that it's no no accident you brought all these this day to this place. And in America today, Father, we are in a lot of trouble as a nation. Our morals and all the values that we hold dearly as believers in Christ are being tromped on. And we're losing our freedoms here and there daily. And today we want to give you thanks that we have the privilege of sitting here this morning gathered together without fear. We thank you for that. But Father, you know the days ahead. They're decreed that what's going to happen will happen and you're in complete control. And we can have confidence in you in these days that sometimes we are fearful and we forget your promises that you're in complete control and you are coming again. Any, da- any hour or minute of the day or night, you can come and take your church to be with you. And Father, we thank you for these promises. Thank you for this place. Thank you for our dear pastor and his family. And we ask your blessing upon pastor as he brings a message this morning. And I pray that the Holy Spirit will empower him this morning to teach your word, your truth, with power and authority and love. And Father, thank you for every guest that's here this morning. We love you, Lord, and thank you for each one. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would speak to their hearts, each one of us today. May our minds not be thinking of what we're doing later, but may our minds be focused on your word and what's being said. And may we let it sink down into our hearts and make changes where we need to make changes Thank you again for your love and your watch care over us in Jesus' name. Amen. At this time, we'd like the ushers to come forward. Uh, let's see, we'll have uh, 
Brother John, if you come on up, and Joe, thank you. John Hansen, thank you so much. Here we go. Oh, Fernando's coming. Praise the Lord. Okay. I hope each one of you that came to the breakfast are satisfied because we enjoyed having breakfast with you and making it for you this morning. It was a joy to do that. So we want to thank you for being here for that. Let's go ahead and give thanks to the Lord. Father, thank you again that we can come before you this morning and present our gifts as we present ourselves to you. And Father, what a privilege it is to give to your work. And this congregation here that you've called together as a faithful congregation in their giving, we thank you for that. Bless the gift and the giver once again, Father, this morning. And use these gifts for your ministry around the world. In New Zealand, where our brother Russell is pastor in the Shepherd's Bible College, use these funds to enhance the gospel around the globe. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. This song is for those who have been prodigals or are prodigals today. I return to the sacred ground again Where I first heard you call my name And I bow again I have wandered straight and sin But I recall the mercies of the one who calls me yours you have bought it with the price the precious blood of Jesus yes my life is yours you have bought it with the price the precious blood of Jesus Christ my Lord
Thank you, Kevin. Pastor Eric, come on up, teach the Word of God, brother. Well, 2016 is moving right along, which means that just a few more months, we get to witness yet another Summer Olympic Games. I love the Olympics because it's a connection with the ancient world and and our modern world. So many of the same competitions they were playing and running uh, thousands of years ago. The Olympics existed during the time of Christ. And so it's no surprise to find that the Apostle Paul uses several of the Olympic Games as metaphors for the Christian life. Most notable, of course, is how much we can learn about the Christian life from running a race. There's also much to be learned, though, about falling down in a race. Back in 2011, there was an up-and-coming track star named Morgan Yusini. She started the 2011 season leading the world. She entered the 1,500-meter race in the 2011 World Championships as the clear front-runner. But with less than 500 meters to go, she tripped over another runner She fell hard. She finished 10th. And just think about how disappointing that would be. You train, you try so hard only to stumble and then fall. Well, she did rebound in 2012. She won the 1,500-meter race at the U.S. Track and Field Olympic Trials, which meant she was going to compete for America in the 2012 London Olympics. That was her dream, her chance to redeem herself. She was, again, the favorite to win, but... Tragedy struck. On her final lap of the race, her left knee hit the back foot of another runner, and she stumbled and fell hard. This time, she didn't even finish the race. She left the Olympics empty-handed and crushed, more emotionally than physically. So again, for the second time, she fell in her race. I don't think any of us can fathom that level of discouragement, disappointment, and to fall on such a stage would be soul-crushing. Well, there's a parallel here with the Christian life as well, because sometimes you can learn more from another believer's failures than their successes. One such believer is the Apostle Peter. Throughout the ministry of Jesus, Peter was the clear front-runner. He was the top disciple. He was their leader. Jesus was their master, of course. But everyone knew that Peter was being groomed as their leader. And rightly so. Peter was bold in his faith. He was confident in Christ. And surely all the disciples thought, Peter, he'll stand the test. He'll be fine. Peter himself thought that. He would never fall. He would never stumble. He would never leave Jesus. He would never deny him. But we all know that's what happened. Peter went on both to abandon Jesus during his arrest and then to deny Jesus during his trial. Peter, likewise, fell twice in his race. The second being much worse than the first. And it is this second fall, Peter's threefold denial of Christ, that was the focus of our text from last week in Mark chapter 14. We're going there again. So take your Bibles, maybe the one in front of you, and open to Mark chapter 14. Find your way to Mark chapter 14. We started into this passage last week, but we didn't see everything there is to see, so we want to revisit it for a part two this morning. Of course, with a great Easter tie-in, as we'll see. But in case you weren't here last week, I want to give you a quick 
catch-up. On Sunday mornings in general, we've been going through the Gospel of Mark, verse by verse by verse. And we've seen the life of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus. And now in chapter 14, we're getting to the death of Jesus. Not long ago, we watched Jesus. He was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane with his disciples. When, as we know, Judas, the betrayer, shows up, and with him, all the religious leaders of Israel. And standing behind them was a a full Roman cohort. That's between 200 to 600 soldiers showed up in the garden to arrest Jesus. As Jesus was bound, his disciples fled. Very quickly, this every-man-for-himself mentality overtook them, and they all just ran for the hills, Peter included. Jesus is then led bound back to Jerusalem to await trial. But as we found, this is the biggest sham trial ever. Normally, when someone commits a crime, investigators look for evidence, and then they make an arrest. But they did the exact opposite with Jesus. They started by arresting him. Then they tried really hard to fabricate evidence so that they could accuse him of some crime. Of course, the religious leaders of Israel were motivated by a prior hatred of Jesus. They had sentenced him to death long ago in their hearts. And now they were just trying to find some reason to pin on him. And that's what they found when Jesus himself confessed that he was, in fact, the Christ and the Son of God. Hardened in unbelief, they found him guilty of blasphemy and proceeded to blindfold him and beat him. All of this took place between 1 and 3 a.m. that morning. Jesus would then await daybreak, at which point they would hand him over to the Romans for the Roman phase of his trial, which led to his ultimate crucifixion. We'll see that later in Mark 15 in the weeks to come. But right before that, the very end of Mark 14, we get this little story. It's not about Jesus. It's about Peter. And we find that as Jesus was on trial, at the same time, Peter of sorts was on trial. After Jesus was arrested, he was taken to the the complex, the, the, the palace of the high priest to stand trial before Caiaphas, who's the high priest, and the Sanhedrin. That's like their supreme court. But we also learned Peter managed to sneak himself inside of that household, that courtyard, to watch what was happening to Jesus. Yeah, Peter fled Jesus in the garden, but he mustered up some courage And he made his way back into that courtyard. He managed to sneak inside. He's trying to make good on his vow not to abandon Jesus. We see this inner turmoil between faith and fear. He wants to do what is right, but he's scared. So he gets in the courtyard of the high priest to watch and wait for news of Christ's trial. Now, for more details of of everything that happened to to, to Peter in that courtyard, you can go to our website. You can download last week's sermon for it, the long version of that. For now, I just want us to read this passage again to, in brief, catch up to speed on what happened to Peter in that courtyard as Jesus was on trial. So for that, Mark 14, look at verse 66 with me. We'll just read this together. Mark 14, verse 66 says, As Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with Jesus the Nazarene. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you are talking about. And he went out onto the porch. The servant girl saw him and began once more to say to the bystanders, this is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders were again saying to Peter, surely you you are one of them, for you're a Galilean too. 
But he began to curse and swear, I do not know this man you're talking about. Immediately a rooster crowed a second time, and Peter remembered how Jesus had made the remark to him, before a rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he began to weep. Jesus had indeed told Peter earlier that night this was going to happen. This passage captures that fulfillment. On three separate occasions, Peter vehemently denied knowing Jesus. He he disavowed any association with Jesus. His fall, his failure was complete. Peter, the disciple whom Jesus called the rock, had crumbled into a pile of sand. And to make matters worse, right as Peter was denying Jesus the third time, Luke 22, verse 61, tells us that at that moment, Jesus looked at Peter. Jesus had just been found guilty, so they took him back outside into the courtyard where they were going to proceed to beat him. And as Jesus goes outside, he hears in the distance those yells of Peter, and he's disavowing him. And so Jesus turns his face into the direction of those screams. And for that split second, that the eyes of Peter and Jesus connect. And that stare of Jesus hollowed out Peter. He knew he had done wrong. He knew he had fallen. He was unworthy. And being crushed by that guilt, he just ran away and wept. Peter then goes into hiding, and we don't hear of him again until after the resurrection. So we found it's a pretty serious passage. It's a heavy passage. It's a somber passage. But believe it or not, it's a very relevant passage as well. Because we are meant to learn much from Peter's fall. Sometimes more can be learned from someone's failures than their successes. And in particular, we spent a good amount of time last week reflecting on one huge lesson that stems from Peter's failure. Namely, a caution against spiritual pride. A caution against spiritual pride. Now, how did Peter fall so far? How did, how did this happen? The answer is spiritual pride. He thought too highly of himself. He relied too much on himself. He didn't rely on the Lord for strength. Being overconfident, he failed to watch and to pray that he may not come into temptation. And so when the time of testing came, like a tree with no roots, of course he fell. All he had was his own strength. That quickly ran out. He didn't have any strength in the Lord to rely on. He wasn't seeking the Lord. And so he fell. Of course he fell. And the same happens to you and me all the time. This is still how we fall into great sin. So we're meant to see Peter and in a way be be crushed ourselves. Because we're no different. We all have denied Jesus ourselves many times in many ways. You might think, no, I haven't done that. I'm not like this. But, But yes, we are. Every time you fail to speak up about Christ when you know you should have. Every time you hear others slander Christ, but you say nothing. Or every time you mean to share the gospel with that family member, but you shrink away. Are we not, in effect, denying him? And every time we sin, though not with our lips, with our lives, are we not denying him as Lord? In the moment, as we choose sin, are we not, in effect, saying we we love this sin more than Christ our Lord? And to those who see Peter's fall, and think this doesn't apply to them, they're better than this, that fact alone already proves them guilty. 
Because it shows they've already fallen into the same spiritual pride that took Peter down. Well, last week we gave our time to reflecting on this lesson, trying to diagnose the problem of spiritual pride and and provide a remedy. For now, though, we want to move on and focus on a second lesson. I told you there were two huge lessons that come from Peter's denials. And we didn't have time for the second one last week. But it's all the better because this second lesson, it's worth its own sermon. And so from Peter's epic threefold denial of Christ, we're meant to behold, number one, a caution against spiritual pride. That was last week, take heed lest you fall. But in addition, we're also meant to behold, number two, a comfort for spiritual failure. A comfort for spiritual failure. Failure, And it is to this second lesson that I want us to direct our attention this morning. We've already gone through this text in detail last week and in brief this morning. But with our time, I I want you to behold the encouragement and actually the comfort that grows out of Peter's fallen tree. Because after all, only from that fallen position can you look up and see Christ for as great as he is. And only when you're fallen can Christ the Lord pick you back up. And indeed, we find that our fall actually serves to lift Christ up higher in our lives. You see him as great as he truly is. And I want us to see that now with our time. So, a comfort for spiritual failure. And I want to give you specifically three points of comfort for spiritual failures that derive from Peter's fall. Three points of comfort for spiritual failures. Number one, Jesus died for spiritual failures. Jesus died for spiritual failures. And we learned last week, we spent a lot of time, this is a heavy, somber passage. We look at Peter, it's like looking in a mirror because that's, that's us. We are fallen. We are all spiritual failures before God. You, me, all of us. But through this passage, there's actually a profound encouragement. And let me explain. Peter, he's one of the first followers of Jesus. He left everything to follow him. He believed in him. Peter's the guy where when Jesus, he saw Jesus walking on water. Peter's the one who gets out of the boat in faith to go to him. That's Peter. Peter's the one, the first one to confess Jesus for who he really is, the Christ and the Son of God. Peter really believes that. And when push comes to shove, Peter's the one who takes out his sword and he's ready to fight to defend Jesus to the death. So that's Peter. But then we see Peter, the same guy. After that, he's the one who runs away. He flees. And then after that, even worse, he vehemently denies even knowing Jesus three times. And look, that's meant to be shocking. That that you're supposed to sense the scandal behind that. Like, how could that happen to Peter? At least this tells you it's not made up. The whole purpose of Mark's gospel is to convince you that Jesus is the Christ and the Son of God. He wants you to to see that, to believe that. Mark wants you to believe in Jesus. But by the end of the story, you've got one disciple, Judas, betraying Jesus. And you have another disciple, the lead disciple, Peter, denying Jesus. I mean, if you're making this story up, you don't include that. If you want people to believe in Jesus, wouldn't you cover up the betrayal of Judas, the denial of Peter? 
Because what does that say about Jesus? What kind of a Messiah is he? He couldn't even do anything for his own disciples. Even after spending three years with them, they weren't reformed. He has nothing to show for his ministry. So what what a failure. In a way, you could say the betrayal of Judas and the denial of Peter really makes Jesus look like a failure. But not so fast. There's more to the story. It is true. Spending three years living with Jesus was not enough to reform the disciples. But far from this making Jesus a failure, it only highlights the fact of why he came. Jesus came to seek and save that which was lost. And that's why they needed him. Think about this. The solution to a problem tells you something about the problem. The solution tells you something about the nature of the problem. So like if you've got men like Peter and they're basically good guys, if that's true, shouldn't three years living with God in flesh, shouldn't that be enough to reform their character and basically make them perfect? You would think. But you see, Jesus knew that even the best of us, even men like Peter, they're still totally lost. Peter was not good enough. Nor are we. We're all fallen sinners. We're rebels against God and his authority and his will in our lives. And as such, the Bible calls us spiritually dead. So how is Jesus going to seek and save a bunch of lost, dead sheep? Spending time with them is not enough. Jesus knew there was only one way, one solution to that problem. He had to die for them. He had to trade places with them like a substitute sacrifice. He had to die the death they deserved in their place so as to offer them the life they don't deserve, eternal life. That was the only way. And so what Peter's failure really teaches is the necessity of Christ's death. There's no other way. Spending time with them doesn't bring their salvation. There was only one way. He had to die. Same goes for us and for our sin. This is why we need him. We don't need a buddy. We don't need a friend. We don't need a good teacher or a moral example. We need A savior. Someone who will die in our place to take away our sins and offer us forgiveness. Peter thought he would be the one to die for Jesus. But he had to learn that first he needed Jesus to die for him. Why did Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God, come to earth? Think of him like a shepherd. He's a good shepherd. And he came to seek and save his lost, dead sheep. And that's us. We're lost. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. We're condemned before a holy and righteous God. All of us, like Isaiah 53, 6 says, we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But Jesus knew that from the beginning, the only way to to, to save those lost sheep was to take their place. He had to redeem them, to buy them by giving his life in their place. These sheep were under the penalty of death, eternal death, because of their sins. So Jesus would have to pay that penalty by dying in their place. And that's, that's what the cross is about. That's what he was doing on the cross. A lot of people died on crosses. But Jesus was purchasing redemption 
by nature of who he was on that cross. And so that's why he says, John 10, 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And this is why the good shepherd became a sheep, right? When John the Baptist sees him, what does he say of Jesus? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus, the spotless Lamb of God, stood condemned in our place and bore the eternal wrath of God that should have been ours in hell forever. But he did this to redeem us, to to purchase us. Peter, I love this, Peter, he fell. But he was restored later. He eventually figured this out. He saw things clearly. And, And later in life, what does he tell us himself? Listen to this, 1 Peter, his letter, chapter 1, verses 18 19. He says to us, Know that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers. But you were redeemed with precious blood, as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. We were enslaved to sin. Jesus came, though, to buy our freedom. And what was the price? The price was blood. His blood. His life. He had to give his life. This is the only way. And this is, that's why he did it. That's why we see him allow himself to be arrested and tried and convicted and then beaten and spat upon and then crucified. He did it all willingly, despising the shame. Because that's why he came. That's the whole point. Like a lamb before the slaughter, he was silent before his shearers. He didn't even offer up a protest. Peter also says this in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. He reminds us, Christ suffered for you, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and the guardian of your souls. That speaks for itself. And that's always been the plan. And so, at the very least, we know this. When Jesus looked at Peter that night, as Peter was denying him the third time, Jesus looked at him. We know at the very least, the look on his face was not one of surprise. Jesus wasn't surprised. He knew this is how it has to be. That's why he came. And so, although we look at our spiritual failures like Peter and it, it grieves us, it's depressing to think about, rightly so. That being said, it should only make us run to Christ all the more because Jesus died for spiritual failures. He didn't come for the perfect, for the healthy. He came for the sick. That's us. And that's great encouragement that in him, only in him, there's forgiveness, there's reconciliation, there's redemption. Because Jesus died for spiritual failures like us. But there's more. Number two, Jesus rose for spiritual failures. I told you there's three points of comfort. Jesus died for spiritual failures. Secondly, he rose 
for spiritual failures as well. When we think of Jesus purchasing our salvation, we think of him dying on the cross. We think of the cross for our justification. He died to make us right before God, and that's true. But did you know that his resurrection also impacts our salvation? Did you know that? You've probably heard it said that if Jesus didn't rise, we would still be dead in our sins. You've heard that, 1 Corinthians 15. Do you know why that is? Do you know how the resurrection ties into our justification where we're made right before God? The Bible teaches that. Romans 4.25 says, He who was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. He was raised because of our justification. What's the connection? Well, think about this. What's our problem before God? Sin. We have a sin problem. Our spiritual failure. Our sin brings about a penalty problem and a power problem. Because of our sin, we have a penalty we cannot pay, and we have a power we cannot overcome. What is the penalty for our sin? Death. What is the ultimate power of our sin? Death. And so death summarizes that the consequences of our sin problem. It's summed up in, in death. Death is our problem. You're all going to die, physically, spiritually. But Jesus, though, came to solve that problem, our death problem. So first, he died on the cross to pay the penalty of our sin. So the penalty is gone. But how do we know that Jesus paid our penalty in full? That he paid for all of our sins? It's it's all gone. The penalty is totally gone. How do we know that? Because he rose from the dead. Listen, if our sin debt still existed, then Jesus would still be in the grave. He would still be paying for our sins. But the fact that he rose proves that that penalty has been paid in full. It's gone. He rose. And that explains the verse, 1 Corinthians 15, 17, where he says, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You're still in your sins. And that would be true if he was not raised. So first, the resurrection proves that the penalty of our sin has been taken care of. What about the power of our sin? Well, that power is death. That's also why Jesus died. He took our sins, therefore he had to die. But how do we know that he also overcame the power of our sin? Again, because he rose. If Jesus remained in the grave, that would mean sin's power was greater than his power. It would mean death itself was a stronger force than Jesus. Then we would have no hope, no living hope that we will ever overcome the power of sin, death, and have eternal life. But that's not what happened. Death could not hold him. And as he rose, he proves that there's no power greater than his. Bruce Ware in his book, The Man Christ Jesus, helpfully puts it this way, quote, Christ's resurrection demonstrates that Christ has completely, decisively, and once for all triumphed over sin and its greatest power. See, the resurrection proves that the atonement worked. Everything he sought to do, he did. 
Jesus is life incarnate. And so he is our ultimate answer to death. That's our problem. He is the solution himself. The penalty of sin, the power of sin are conquered by Christ alone in death and in resurrection. So this is why he says, remember this, John 11, talks to Martha right before he raises Lazarus from the dead. He says to Martha, John 11:25, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, Yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. See, that's who Jesus is, and that's what he did. And by believing in him, you can have life as well, here and hereafter. And you notice Martha in that passage, she gives the same confession that Peter gave. I believe you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, God in flesh. Peter believed that, right? Peter believed that. And if that's true, if that's who Jesus really is, he's God with us, the Son of God. If that's true, you know, Peter should have reasoned that he's greater than death. Peter should have reasoned, much like Abraham reasoned, when God told him to sacrifice his only son Isaac, that since he was the son of promise, even if Jesus should die, God would raise him from the dead. Peter should have put that together. But we know his mind, his faith were clouded by his weakness and his fall. But again, Peter, he's later restored. He sees Christ clearly. And from Peter especially, we learn how the scandal of the cross, a dead Messiah, how does that work? The scandal of the cross, it's resolved on Easter Sunday. It's resolved on Sunday. The resurrection is what transforms the terrible news of a dead Messiah into good news for us. Because that means he did everything he said he was going to do about the penalty and the power of our sin. And so Peter tells us, again, from 1 Peter later in life, he says this, 1 Peter 1, verses 3 through 5, He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith, for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. I hope you get that. Through Jesus, you can be made new, born again, given new birth. This comes by your faith. One way to think of it, think of it is union with Christ. You are in faith, you are united to Christ. The Bible says we are in Christ. You've heard of surgeries that separate Siamese twins? Just imagine some crazy surgery that joins two people together forever. And that's, that's like salvation. That's what, it's like God has sewn us together with Christ. We are united with Christ. We are one in Christ. So that means what he has, we have. His benefits, they're now our benefits. His debt paid, that's our debt paid. Not because of us, but because now we're in him. That's what Paul was getting at in Romans 6. 
That we've been buried with Him. As Jesus died, so we died to sin. And as He rose to new life, so we rise to new life. It's all in Him. Romans 6.5 says, If we have become united with Him in the likeness of His death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of His resurrection. This is the nature of our new life in Him, our eternal life. You have to recognize, God doesn't accept you into heaven by virtue of you and your goodness. That's why we're kept out, because we, we're not. We fall short. We are only accepted by virtue of Christ and being found in him. So when God sees you, if you have faith in Christ, he doesn't see you. He sees Christ. And so he accepts you. That's the only way. I'm sorry if that bursts your self-esteem bubble, but that's the only way it works. And, you know, the real effect that should have, though, is simply to magnify and exalt Christ in our lives. He is everything to us. This is why for, for Christians, he's everything. He's worth everything. He's that pearl of great price. It's worth selling everything to acquire that one pearl. So the question is, do you, do you have him? Have you been united to him by faith? If not, I call you to believe today, right now. It's not too late. Believe in him now. Come to the living water. But for those of you who have believed you are in him, be encouraged, rejoice, delight, because Jesus rose for your spiritual failures. And in him, though we are all like Peter, we fall so far short, but in him, just because we're in him, we're made perfect. And we have life here and, and there as well. Jesus died for spiritual failures. He rose for spiritual failures. And then lastly, number three, Jesus restores spiritual failures. He restores spiritual failures. This is some really good news we need to be reminded of. Even our greatest spiritual failures in life, our greatest sins, they don't take us outside the reach of God's mercy. God's grace is greater than all of our sins. This doesn't excuse our sin. We know that. It's not giving us a license to go do whatever you want to do. We know that. But the encouragement is that for those who know the Lord and love the Lord, yet still stumble and fall, you're still safe in Christ. That's Peter, that's us. Grace abounds for spiritual failures. And Jesus is quick to restore. Just think about, just in your own mind, your own heart, what, what have you done? How have you really fallen short? How have you blown it in your Christian race like Peter did? We all have. So think about it. What have you done? And we're not excusing that, but if you're in Christ, be encouraged. Because the Lord always stands ready to restore us spiritual failures. No one fell as hard as Peter. But see how the Lord graciously restored him. And Peter, he didn't have to do penance. He didn't have to do a bunch of good works to make up for it, to try and pay God back. It's free. It's free grace. If you're in Christ, there's no condemnation. Jesus already He's already paid the penalty. All you have to do is simply... Return to Christ. Just go back to him. Turn to him continually. 
Let me remind you the story of Peter's restoration real quick. After denying the Lord, Peter goes into hiding with the rest of the disciples. They, they huddle up in the upper room. They're scared. Peter has fallen, but he hasn't fallen away like Judas. There's a difference. Peter still hoped in Jesus. He's just, he's confused. He's, he's scared. They're frightened. They're weak. Well, come Sunday morning, Mary and some other women, they barge into that room and they say, he's gone. His body's gone. The, the stone's been rolled away. They've taken him. She's confused as well. The disciples, they, they don't believe it, but what does Peter do? He bursts out of that room and he's on a foot race to the tomb to see for himself what's going on. He peers in. He's pondering these things. He doesn't, his eyes are still closed. He doesn't see it. But later that evening, Jesus finally appears to them. He shows them his hands, his side, his feet, and they believe. Jesus then tells them to go back to Galilee to wait further instructions. And so they do. Fast forward to John 21. We find Peter and the other disciples, they're back the Sea of Galilee. They're waiting for Jesus, but he's not showing up. So they decide to, to do some fishing. They decide they go fishing all night long, but they don't catch anything. Jesus in the morning shows up. They don't recognize him. And he says, hey, why don't you try putting your net on the other side of the boat? And to a fisherman, that's pretty insulting. It's like, what, they didn't try that all night long? Like there's fish on the other side of this little boat? But we know the Lord was sovereignly directing those fish, and, and the net instantly became full. At that moment, they recognized it was the Lord. And what did Peter alone do? He jumps in. He just jumps in and starts swimming to shore as fast as he can. He's not, he's not going to wait to paddle back to shore. He's so eager to see the Lord. And I think we can add, he's so eager to be restored by the Lord. But don't you think that, that guilt of denying him was, was weighing on him and, and just crushing him? He needed to know that even though he fell and failed, that Jesus still accepted him. And he did. Jesus was ready to restore. So listen to this interchange, John 21. Just listen, 15 through 17. So so when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Peter, or rather Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he's talking about the fish. He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my lambs. He said to him again, a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, shepherd my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. Search my heart. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. You see what's going on? Three times, Peter denied the Lord, denied knowing the Lord. But in great grace, Jesus three times questions him and affirms his love for him and restores him fully to service. And Peter was broken so much that he was on the brink of going back to fishing, his old job. That's what was going on there. He thought surely he was no longer qualified to serve Jesus. But not so fast. Being, of course, repentant, Peter was now more qualified to serve because he was finally broken and humble. And that's where you need to be if the Lord is to use you. After all, the only people 
Jesus can use are sinners. That's all he has to choose from. But he chooses to use those who see their sin, grieve their sin, grieve over their sin, but then run to Christ all the more. So Peter's restored. No more fishing. He will be a, a fisher of men permanently. And Jesus, the great shepherd, makes Peter his under-shepherd. And there's so much more in that passage. But at the very least, isn't that just a magnificent, encouraging story of restoration? Jesus restores spiritual failures. That's what he does. That's all he does. And as you continually turn to Christ, you too can and will be restored. Now, one more thing. I want to say one more thing. Because you might still be a little unsettled. Because as you think about it, wait a second. Well, Peter was restored. But Judas was not restored. So how do you know that's not you? After you fall. After all, both Peter and Judas wept over their great sins. So what's the difference? It's a fair question. It's a good question. The answer is there's a world of difference between the two. How do you know you're in God's good graces? How do you know you're safe in Christ? There's a human perspective answer to that question and a divine perspective answer to that question. No, I'll give you both. The human perspective answer is your enduring faith and repentance. What separates the true believer from the false? The genuine from the phony? The Peter from the Judas? It's not perfection. They both fell short. It's not the absence of huge sins. They both sinned greatly. The answer is enduring faith and repentance. We're saved by our faith in Jesus, not by our works. We're saved by his work on the cross. And our our faith in him, his work is applied to us. And as we trust in his death and resurrection to free us from sin, God saves us. That's something Judas never did. He was merely going through the motions on the outside, like many religious people do, go to church here and there, and they play the game. They appear religious on the outside. Judas liked being close to Jesus for some benefits, But he still lived for himself. He served himself. He was still his own God. Christ was not his Lord in life, his master. He never had that faith. So, of course, Judas fell away. It's only a matter of time before he was going to fall away. And when he did so, he displayed a worldly sorrow. It produced tears, but nothing more than tears, not repentance. He rejected his only hope. So, of course, he's hopeless. And I have to say, if this is you, maybe you're one who just, you go through the motions, you're still living for self. If this is you, I can offer you no comfort. But I can bid you to come to Christ. It's not too late to see your sin, humble yourself, cling to him, and and find the peace of forgiveness and new life that he offers. But Peter, though, was different. He truly believed in Jesus. He did deny himself to follow the Lord. And Peter was freed from the penalty of sin and the power of sin. But Peter, like us, was not freed from the presence of sin. We're still sinners. We fall too. Likewise, we at times, we're going to fall into sin. Without excusing that sin, though, you need to know that that doesn't unsave you. That's why Jesus came. But, But here's a big difference. As a big difference... The true believer with enduring faith will always return to Christ in repentance. Judas fell, 
then he fell away. Peter fell, but he did not fall away. Though weak, though ashamed, he couldn't leave. He's not going to leave the Lord. Where else is he going to go? He believed in him. Jesus was still his only hope. And that's a monumental difference. Jesus was still his only hope. That's why he ran to the tomb. That's why he jumped in the water. Because Jesus, though he had really fallen, Jesus was still his only hope. And so when you fall into sin yourself, what do you do? To where, to whom do you turn? Do you just fall and just fall away? Or do you fall but then fall on the feet of Christ and turn back? You likewise need to make Jesus your only hope. And then, and then in Christ, just, just persevere. Just press on, hold on, finish your race of faith. From your perspective, that's how you know. That, that's your call. That's your answer. Persevere in your faith in Christ and that hope. But lest you think it's all up to you, there's a divine perspective to this security as well. How do you really know that you can just rest assured in Christ, that you're safe in Christ? The ultimate answer is that because it's not up to you. It's up to Christ. And he does not let go of his sheep. Jesus knew that Peter was going to deny him that night. But Jesus also knew, unlike Judas, that his faith would not fail. How did Jesus know that? Because Jesus himself promised to Peter that very night that though he was going to sin, Jesus was going to hold on to him and not let him go. Remember, this is what Jesus told Peter that earlier that night. Luke 22, 31, he said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. I mean, you want encouragement? How about Jesus praying for you that your faith would not fail? That even though you're going to stumble, you might fall into sin, your faith will not fail and you'll finish your course. And listen, Jesus does the same thing for us, for all of his sheep. Just think John 17, the high priestly prayer. On the night before his death, that same night, Jesus prays, he gives us this preview of his present ministry. This is what Jesus is doing right now. After he rose, he ascended to the right hand of the Father. He lives forever to make intercession for the saints. He's praying for us. What's he praying? He says in John 17, verse 9, He's not praying for the world. He says that. He is not praying for the world. He's praying this prayer only for his sheep. So what does he pray? Well, verse 11 says, he says to his father, I am no longer in the world, yet they themselves are in the world, and I come to you. Then he says, Holy Father, keep them in your name. Keep them in your name, the name which you've given me, that they may be one even as we are one. And get this, this is what this is saying. Jesus, if you're in Christ, he's praying you into heaven. And his prayers are always answered. That, that is his present ministry for you. Like Peter, you may be sifted, you may stumble. But in Christ, your faith will not fail because he's holding on to you. It feels like you're holding on to him. Good, you must. You must cling to him. But to be more encouraged... The greater encouragement is that all the while, he's holding on to you. It's like with our son Noah. But even as a newborn, he had this really strong grip. 
And so I would be holding him and he would hold onto my shirt with this death grip. Like, it's as if he were trying to hold his own weight. As if it was up to him not to fall. And I can imagine in his little mind he believed, like, if I let go, I'm going to fall. So he held on with all of his might. And that's good. That's a good thing. But in reality, I'm never going to drop him. He doesn't have to. I mean, I'm not going to drop him. He was safe in my arms. What kept him from falling was me, his father, not his own strength. It's good that he clings. He must cling. But he's safe in my arms. And the same is true with us and our Heavenly Father. And God tells us this for our encouragement. You must, you must cling to Christ your whole life long. Hold on to him. Persevere. That's what spiritually alive children do. But rest assured, if you're in Christ, you're safe in his arms. He loses none. You stumble, he restores you, and he will eternally restore you come that day. And to finish, Peter finally learned that lesson of security. And so again, in 1 Peter, he closes that epistle by saying, 1 Peter 5.10, After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you into his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen and establish you. What he's saying is God himself will finish your faith. Easter, it's all about newness. It's all about our new life with Christ here and hereafter. It's not about denying your spiritual failures, pretending everything's okay, that you can be good enough. It's about owning your sin, but just resting in Christ, just being in Christ. Because in him we are made perfect and new. We're restored. And it's only in this newness of life that we can live to the glory of God with eternal peace. When Peter fell, that's what he lost. He lost all of his peace. But as he returned to Christ and as we are in Christ, that's the offer. You can have everlasting peace in this life and the next. That is his literally final words in First Peter. He says, peace be to you all who are in Christ. That's what we get. Peace be to you all who are in Christ. That's what Peter found in him. That's what we have in him. And because of Easter, we get to live in that peace, in this life and in the next. Let us pray. Gracious God in heaven, We praise you on this day, a special day for us who believe in you, the day where we remember especially our risen living Savior, something we need to be remembering every single day of our lives. But today especially, let it it penetrate our hearts. Let these truths, your word, sink in this morning and not just bounce off of us like it so often can do. We need to remember who we are first. Like Peter, we see a mirror. We're all fallen. We've all stumbled in so many ways. We deserve a judgment. We deserve to be cast out. But in your greatest of loves, you sent your son, the Christ, the son of God, God with us to live and to die on that cross, both to overcome the penalty of our sin and the power of our sin. And Lord, he didn't stay in the grave though. He rose sealing his victory over our sin. Now, if if we are in him by faith, if we simply turn to him with all of our lives, make him our life, you save us, you, you, you ransom us, you, you bring us to yourself and give us a new 
and everlasting life. And even in that new life, we still stumble, but Christ is ready to always restore, praying for us. We delight in that knowledge, Lord. Encourage us with these truths, knowing that the Savior lived for us, died for us, rose for us, and is right now praying for us that we would not fail. In this encouragement, may we press on in our race, may we hold on all the tighter, but just enjoying and knowing the fact that you are with us. The God who did so much for us will not let us go. We thank you for this. We exalt you for this. And now we want to sing your praise for this one more time. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. In your bulletin there should be a Heard an old, old story How a Savior came from glory How He gave His life on Calvary To save a wretch like me Heard about His groaning Of His precious blood atoning I repented of my sins And I won the victory My Savior forever He saw me and He bought me With His redeeming blood He loved me ere I knew Him And all my love is due Him He plunged me under victory Beneath the cleansing blood This will sound a lot better if you go like this Come on now. It's Easter Sunday. Heard about his healing, of his cleansing power revealing. Made the lame to walk again, and he called the blind to see. And then I cried to Jesus, come and heal my broken spirit. Somehow Jesus came and brought to me the victory. Oh, victory in Jesus, my Savior forever. He saw me and he bought me with his redeeming blood. He loved me ere I knew him and all my love is due him. The victory beneath the cleansing blood. Heard about a mansion he'll build for me in glory. Heard about the streets of gold beyond the crystal sea. Heard the angels singing of the old redemption story. Some sweet day I'm gonna sing up there The song of victory Oh, victory in Jesus My Savior forever He sought me and He bought me With His redeeming blood He loved me ere I knew Him And all my love is due 
this morning a happy Easter to you. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Amen. Well, join us next door for some fellowship. You are dismissed. We will not see you tonight for no service. We'll have service on Wednesday instead. Take care. Greatest day in history. Have